welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we talk about the use of military air and spacecraft from their earliest days up to today and into the future. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lastly. And today we are joined by Tyler Morton. Tyler is a career Air Force intelligence officer. Uh, he's got more than 2,500 flight hours on various reconnaissance aircraft, including the RC-135 and the MC-12. He holds a Ph.D. in military strategy from the Air University, and he is a graduate of the Air Force's School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. Uh, but more importantly for our conversation today, he is the author of From Kites to Cold War, The Evolution of Manned Airborne Reconnaissance. Tyler, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Brian. Appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. So give us a starting point here. Uh, you're an intelligence officer. You've done... A lifetime of reconnaissance. So, how did you come to this particular project? Wow. Yeah. It's a. Yeah, bear with me. This is a long story. Uh, <laughs> at least a long in time story. So, um, I came in the Air Force back in 1991, and uh, as an airman, and the Air Force made me an airborne linguist. Um, so, you know, kind of as you mentioned, I, I spent a lot of my my early days, you know, in the back of the RC 135, doing that doing that job. Early on, I started wondering, you know, how we got to this exquisite capability that we had, you know, what are, what did our predecessors look like? What did we do in the, you know, Cold War? All those kind of questions that, you know, somebody who's inquisitive might ask. And, and you know, I started asking around, talking to the older guys or whatever, and, and really nobody seemed to know, you know, how it all started. You know, when did we first put linguists in the air was really the, the question that I was getting at with those, you know, with that, you know, first inquisitive looks into, into our history. After a little bit of time, uh, one of the older guys, a guy named Larry Tart, um, who had flown, you know, airborne SIGINT during the Cold War, 60s and 80s, he put out a few few things from inter um, from interviews that he had done with some of the old air crew and from his experience. But again, it was you know it was word of mouth stories. These things were just you know passed from guy to guy and, and based on people's recollections. And you know, as as historians, that doesn't always sit real nice with us. You know, I wanted to know when these things happen and put some you know fact to the to the things that they were telling us. Now, like I said, my intent was to to figure out where linguists came from and then to just kind of you know balloon and blossom from there. Tyler, could you talk a little bit? You mentioned SIGINT. And just for those that don't know, um, there's a lot of different types of intelligence that you kind of talk about, like SIGINT and ELINT and stuff like that. Could you maybe give us a quick rundown of kind of the different types and what they're called? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So SIGINT is kind of the, the overarching umbrella for, um, you know, underneath that we have communications intelligence, which is, you know, basically people, people talking to each other. Um, and then we have electronic intelligence, ELINT, which is, uh, you know, machines talking to each other. Imagery intelligence, which is, of course, taking pictures from the air. But uh, my my focus, you know, as a young guy was was a SIGINT dude. Tyler, you said this kind of ballooned into something larger, uh, which we here at Balloons to Drones uh, absolutely find humorous. Uh, but this is not, <laughs> yeah. uh, this is not your typical uh, history book. And by that, I mean... You go through a lot of history here. A lot of what we tend to read tends to be focused on a specific time period. Uh, and when you start getting into things that stretch five years, 10 years, 15 years, you know, that's a lot of time to cover. But you are conceptualizing a history that, depending on how you look at, either covers several hundred years or a thousand years. So 
How did you conceptualize that? How did you make it work? Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, ultimately the, the history of, of manned airborne reconnaissance is the history of air power. I couldn't find much written that solely focused on that, that subject or that topic. The, the story is found in bits and pieces, you know, work, work, as you mentioned, focus squarely on certain aspects, you know, airborne imagery in World War I, for example. But I thought there should be a primer, if you will, you know, that kind of walks the reader through how the capability evolved to what it is today. And for me, that, that broke down sort of neatly, um, both chronologically and, you know, by, by, by major platform, kite, balloon, and then airplane. So I was looking to fill that historiographical gap that I saw um, to, to help kind of partially fill that. The large time period I cover in the book, starting in China with kites all the way through a, you know, a time in the Cold War, really after Vietnam, certainly presented a challenge from a research perspective. I had to you know, make some choices on which aspects of the history to include. Like a few weeks ago, I was, I was talking to one of the legends from, from the RC-135 community, and you know, his first question was, Hey, did you include the story about when so and so overflew the Kamchatka, you know, peninsula and almost got shot, shot down by the Soviets? And when I told him no, I could see his disappointment. So, you know, a shortfall for sure is that in covering this long time period, I I simply couldn't get everything in there that everyone would be looking for. I was hoping to provide a primer that, you know, at least included some key linkages between the time periods and the platforms, um, you know, that would give somebody a good introduction that, you know, wanted to learn the basic, you know, evolution from where we started to where we are now. And then they could branch out and do their own research from there. From a from a book editor perspective and then talking to uh, to an author here, this is this is one of the great problems, not with the industry, but being a historian is trying to choose all of the anecdotes that tell the story without it getting too large and the publisher having to come back to you and tell you, hey, this isn't going to work. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, that research process for the, the airborne linguists and what kind of approaches you used and sources you used and how that came about. Like I mentioned earlier, there was, you know, word of mouth stories passed around. And the most prevalent one is it was that a airborne linguist started with Nisei Japanese flying in the Pacific. They would stick one of these guys in the back of a B-24 or, or a B-29 and they'd listen and try to do whatever they could. And that was the prevalent story in the airborne linguist community at the time that, you know, it started in the Pacific with the Nisei. Early on in my research, I came across a book called The Enemy is Listening written by a British World War II female intelligence officer named Eileen Clayton. She's a ground signals intelligence specialist in the war. It's a fascinating book. She writes about mostly ground you know, activities, things that she was doing. At various spots, she mentions the British experimenting with airborne electronic intelligence and with linguists on the back of these uh, the bombers. And fortunately, she was thorough enough to put some units in there. So I had that kind of piece, you know, a couple of units that she had mentioned in her book. And then there's a book written by the Air Force History Museums program in, in 1996 called Piercing the Fog. It's an anthology of essays um, about intelligence operations in World War II, basically. And in one of those, there are some oblique references to linguists being in the back of B-17s. But again, there's really no, no citations, no documentation of it. So I had kind of those two pieces in my mind that perhaps there's some stuff out there, right? I went to Squadron Command in the United Kingdom at the 48th Intelligence Squadron, our, our, our RC-135 squadron out there. And while 
I was there, I was fortunate enough to be, you know, close enough to the UK archives where I could go down there and start digging around a little bit. And before I knew it, I started finding documents from, from 1943 that, that detailed exactly how the British developed this capability. Then they started talking about how, the, you know, the UK and the US were going to coordinate on this project. Of course, this is all very exciting to me because, like I mentioned, that, you know, there's very little written about this. And before I know it, I've, I've worked my way back to the very first meeting where this is ever even proposed in 1943. And I, I, you know, I have the meeting minutes where they say, hey, let's, let's um, get some radios. Let's throw them in the back of an Avro. We'll put a couple of our German linguists, British guys, up. We're going to fly over the North Sea, and we're going to see what we hear. And they fly out. They take off. They fly out there, and they're just overwhelmed by the amount of German communications that they're able to intercept, you know, from the air. And then the very next day, they start meeting with the 8th Air Force. And by the end of the next week, they've got radios on a B-17 with the same two chaps, you know, from the UK flying in a B-17 on a sortie into, into bomb Germany. So they're in the formation with the, you know, with the 8th Air Force. They don't actually go into the country, but that one B-17 peels off and they sit there and they listen to what's going on from, from right north of Holland. And it's just fascinating. The notes they took are, are meticulous and the capability that they de- they're able to develop. For an old airborne linguist, this is fascinating because none of this has been ever talked about or ever written about. Wow. That What kind of stuff were they intercepting? Uh, so they're they're flying out and they're intercepting the German, they're intercepting the Luftwaffe while they're defending, you know, the occupied Europe. On these first two sorties that I mentioned, they're kind of hanging off the coast while the 8th Air Force is doing a bombing mission. And that enables them to start learning the, the you know, Luftwaffe TTP so they can see how they attack the bombers, wow. the uh, things that they do, you know, as the bombers are coming in. All the TTP that the Luftwaffe had started being developed with these guys. Because, you know, you got to remember, as the Germans started to fall back to Germany, we lost the ability to, to collect on them from the ground. Mm-hmm. We were kind of losing capability because, they, you know, as they retrenched, back towards Germany, we just didn't have coverage. So putting the linguists in the back of the bombers extended our coverage and really was, you know, the main source of, of order of battle development for a, a lot of the stuff. Not to mention the fact that the guys that were on the bombers listening to the Germans could tell the bomber pilots what was going on, right? So they could tell them when the Germans were coming, they could tell them from where they were coming, they could, you know, all the things that we kind of take for granted these days, these were being developed on the back of B-17s by guys who had no training, for the most part, weren't aircrew. They went and scoured the ranks looking for guys to see who could do this job. And, you know, most of them were German-Americans who spoke the language. And they, you know, they were either a cook, a supply guy, whatever they were, but they became aircrew. They put them on the back of these bombers with no training or anything. And, you know, these guys are real, real heroes. Tyler, I think uh, you are absolutely a real and true historian here because there is no greater feeling than being in the archives and someone bringing you something that you know either no one is ever looked at or no one has looked at in an extremely long time. Uh, And I can tell you that Mike and I absolutely share your enthusiasm for being neck deep uh, in papers and Hollander boxes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, But knowing, knowing that you have found something true and unique uh, that you can add to the historiography. So I absolutely applaud you for that. I, I That is a great feeling. Yeah, it really was, you know, nerd moment of the, of the century, you know. <laughs> well, I also think it's a, a great moment to talk about being in the archives, that you ha- had read all of the books on the subject, had already done some original source research. 
But till until you are in the bowels of the archives, until you've got the research assistants pulling boxes that no one's looked at uh, in years, you really never know in that original document, original source research, what you are going to come across. Oh, yeah. No, it's you spend hours of nothing, right? Pull box after box and there's nothing in there and you're looking for, you know, a needle and a stack of needles, if you will. And, you, you know, <laughs> you, you find nothing that helps you and you find yourself off on tangents because it's just interesting and you like history and you're reading about, you know, whatever the thing was. And you're like, well, this has absolutely nothing to do with my subject. Let me get back on track. Then when you do find, like you said, you find that one document. And in my case, a whole treasure trove of documents that were talking about the specific thing I was looking for. Yeah, it was it was just fantastic. Yeah, I think that's well, one that's incredible. We all have stories like that, I think, where we have these moments where we find some document that you saw like a nerd moment where we all just kind of freak out. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm holding this piece of paper. Right. You know, mine was, you know, finding the reports from when they were doing tests uh, on captured MiGs in the 60s. And I've got this report on, you know, the MiG-17's capabilities because they had one that had, that a defector had brought in. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so cool that I, I have this. And I wasn't the first person to look at that document. It's cited yeah. in a bunch of books, but it's it's still, it was a, a really cool moment, I think. And I know, Brian, you've probably got moments like that too. My, my all-time uh, favorite one was in the research for the Architect of Air Power book, and I had had them pull four or five Hollinger boxes down at the Air Force Historical Research Agency, and by happenstance, the research assistant said, you didn't ask for this, but I went ahead and pulled it. Because it seemed like it was it was uh, useful to your study, and I open it up, and it's actually Larry Cuter's unpublished autobiography that he never finished. Oh, wow. To my knowledge, no one knew existed. That's, that's awesome. And so yes, yes, please, please do hand me that. This is going to be useful. Thank you. Yeah, it's right. just one more way that archivists are incredible, and we completely rely on them to be able to do anything that we do. Oh, yeah. You know, being able to actually put your hands on those documents just kind of surprised me at the beginning. You know, I remember that one of the first times I went to the, the historical research agency at Maxwell, I'm researching Foulet and what he was writing about air power in, you know, 19 in 1907. One of the boxes has his thesis from, you know, Command General Staff College, the mm -hmm. actual thesis from 1907. I'm sitting wow. there holding it, reading about, you know, how he, he thinks balloons are going to take over and these dynamical flying machines that, you know, are, are air planes, of course. I'm sitting there holding a paper from 1907 that was written by one of the heroes of the, you know, of the Air Force. The whole thing was just surreal at the time, but all made possible by the, the great work that those folks do, for sure. I, I, too, as you were talking about holding Benny's thesis paper, I'm kind of geeking out over here, <laughs> thinking how much I would like to see that. And at the same time, recognizing someone is going to listen to this show and go, I absolutely don't give a damn why we're <laughs> talking about this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, we used to have like uh, we would bring students into the archives sometimes and students that didn't care a whole lot about history. And all of a sudden they're holding somebody's service records. Yeah. And they're able to track certain missions or maybe it's an old newspaper or maybe it's some kind of they become artifacts in a sense, but you can touch them and, and really get up close with them. And I think that that's been a turning point for a lot of my students, I think, in, in awesome. seeing that. We, we here at Balloons to Drones absolutely care about theses from the 1900s. <laughs> if nothing else. Hey, I don't say that. 
<laughs> awesome. Did All you right. say, I may have misheard you a minute ago, you were talking about the Eileen Clayton book. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Are there women involved in this uh, signals intelligence gathering? Not, not on the airborne side. Yeah, okay. The uh, the Brits, yeah, I'm sure you know, had you know women all throughout their intelligence services, but uh, sure, sure. There is one really interesting story in there. The Brits trained a lot of these uh, initial airborne linguists, Americans who spoke German, and she has a story in her book about this particular female British officer who's in charge of training the guys, and they're kind of exacerbated. At, at the end of the day, she tells them, "Hey, I can do this job better than you guys," and they they actually make her put her money where her mouth is, and she flies on a sortie on a B seventeen does the job, comes back. If the stories are true, her transcripts were the best ones that anyone had ever seen. <laughs> so, wow. yeah. Uh, but walk us through really quick here. Go back to the very early days of what we will call aerial reconnaissance. Tell us how you, you thought about, you know, really the early, the kites and balloons piece of this book. Yeah, so full disclosure, when I first got into this, I didn't even know that we, we started off by putting guys on kites. So that was, you know, one of the things that I quickly learned was it didn't start with balloons, which, you know, seems to be where a lot of people's history begins with 1793 with the first balloon flight. I think I stumbled across a couple books that talked about man kites. Um, there was a lot going on in the in the middle of the 1800s with a couple guys in England. Uh, George Pocock had a, a man carrying kite, and then that evolved in the British military. The UK military actually started using them um, operationally. But again, the inquisitive nature in us, I think, you know, you want to know where that all started. The guy didn't come up with it, so I traced it, kept tracing it back, kept tracing it back, came across bits and pieces in in various books here and there, and then you know, ultimately focused in on the simple fact that the Chinese created kites and they put guys on them. This is, a, again, a challenge with the history is you're hoping that the sources that you're reading are right, because I, I couldn't go find the primary sources to back all this up. It got down to the guys in China putting putting dudes on these kites, hoisting them up in the air so they could so they could look at any of these positions, which is obviously the you know essence of reconnaissance where it all began. Absolutely. I think one of the other really fascinating aspects of this uh, book is kind of the other end of the spectrum. So, of course, we've got kites and balloons, and then we move forward into the Cold War. And as the Cold War recedes from history, as we begin to lose, you know, the the cold warriors and myth turns into legend and everything that goes with that. Uh, what did you discover about manned reconnaissance during the Cold War that that really surprised you? Yeah, a lot of these operations, these manned airborne reconnaissance operations during the Cold War, really had nothing to do with intelligence. That there were really political statements or public diplomacy being, being conducted through the show of force, if you will, or just the simple fact that the United States could put a reconnaissance aircraft over your territory around your territory, maybe not necessarily really interested in the intelligence that was going to be collected because we already knew or, or whatever the case might have been. So that one kind of stuck out to me. I wonder if you could, because uh, I think when a lot of people think of these platforms, what comes to mind, you know, for a surveillance platform or an ISR platform is like a U-2 or an SR-71, something of that nature that's considered highly secretive and we don't want people knowing that it's there, that sort of thing. But you're kind of saying, you know, we do want to have this a very visible aspects oh, yeah. to, to yeah, so, so could you maybe yeah give us a, a couple anecdotes about some examples of that yeah one one there 
comes to mind immediately is uh, there's an instance in the in the 50s with flight of RB-47s takes off out of Germany, and their mission is to fly directly over Moscow in a show of force, if you will. It's an intelligence collection platform. It's all that. But they take off with the sole intent of scaring the Russians and showing them, you know, what we can do with our aircraft. And they fly directly over Moscow. Um, and the intent is to make them think and to make them spend money on air defense stuff um, in the future that we really, you know, we had no intention of flying an air raid mission over Moscow, hopefully. But the point of flying the reconnaissance aircraft was to show them that we could actually do this. And again, not really looking at the intelligence gain on that sortie, but to send some kind of political message to the Soviets, which, you know, again, I, I wasn't expecting that, but I, I think it's really cool and something that needs to be explored a little bit. Definitely, yeah. Has this, working on this book and, and through your research, has this changed your perception of what you do in your active duty career or what you have done during your active duty career going back to your, your enlisted days? You know, I don't, I have to think about that one a little bit harder, but my, my initial reaction is it hasn't changed that at all. What it has done is made me appreciate the airmen who do this mission. And that's that's a theme, you know, that I think runs throughout this book. You know, the will and the enterprising grit, the perseverance and the, the innovative mentality that airmen have had from the very beginning to make this capability work. And I think through all of this, that hit home even harder as I went, you know, as I dived into these case studies and, and read about the people who made all this happen. Because a lot of times we just get misty eyed over the aircraft and that type of stuff. But there's actually guys making all this happen. And I think I appreciate people that get on the back of these airplanes and, you know, and the people who build them and design them and all that kind of stuff. Now, I'd probably appreciate that a little bit more having gone through this. Yeah, excellent. You know, you, you talk about the the people that do the mission, continue to do the mission uh, and have done the mission. And one of the things that I'm always fascinated about is having been active duty myself is you'll spend years and years going to various courses. You know, you, you are a graduate of the, the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies probably went to squadron officer school. And if you are not steeped in the history of air power, you don't think about what things are necessarily named for. So it was it was a great point for me going through this book to see Carl Polifka pop up, if you're familiar with that name. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I, I sat in, in the big blue hall there in SOS, you know, in Polifka Auditorium and, and had no idea who he was. And, and here, you know, come to find out years later, as I'm doing the research for this book, he's in that long line of ISR professionals, if you will, and should definitely be recognized more. It goes back to, you know, a book you wrote about a, a hero of air power that none of us even know about. I think as historians in this business, we have, you know, we need to look at those cases and write a little bit more about them. I wasn't trying to throw you bones. It's just, you know, it's the first example that came up. It's a great case study. And an airman who was overlooked, who had a huge role. No, thank you for plugging me on, on my own show. <laughs> I didn't say the name <laughs> of your book, so, you know. That's uh, Architect of Air Power, the there biography of Lawrence Cuter by Brian Leslie. Well, I think yeah. the important thing there is, is I and you and all of us here continue to grapple with air power history and air force history. There are so many men and women who who still need good biographies. So if you're a, a young academic out there, or a young researcher working in the field of air power, it is ripe for more biographies and, and more stories to be told outside of the Billy Mitchell, Hap Arnold, Curtis LeMay genre, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of bring it back to the book here. What do you hope if someone picks this book up off the shelf at Barnes & Noble or orders it from the great Naval Institute Press, what do you want them to get from this book? 
there's several themes. I've mentioned a couple of them that run through this book, but I think the one that is most relevant to, you know, today is that we must use caution before we leap into, you know, whatever the next technological panacea is. We hear a lot of talk today about drones replacing manned aircraft and, you know, artificial intelligence replacing analysts. You know, don't get me wrong, I'm a believer. But my caution is that we need to be deliberate as we bring these new technologies on board. And I I tried to weave that theme throughout the book of, you know, we had new technologies, but it took time for them to become integrated into the Air Force. So that's what I'd say is before we go completely in man or AI focus, let's ensure we're replacing that capability with something that's, you know, ready for prime time, along with just the simple fact, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that we still need airmen to make these decisions to drive this technology. They are critical to our success. And we, we get too enamored sometimes with the technology, which is great, don't get me wrong. But we need the airmen still. Yeah, absolutely. I think the word you used a few minutes ago was deliberate. And I think in the the fast-paced Twitter sphere world that we live in, most people will tend to lump you into a category uh, of either all or nothing. You know, either yeah. you support the airplane or you don't support the airplane. Either you support unmanned aerial systems or you don't support unmanned aerial systems. Either you support the Space Force or you don't support the Space Force. And I think it's really great to take that very deliberate, thoughtful approach to where are we now, where have we been, and where do we go from here? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's a theme that I hope comes out, you know, when people read this, that they kind of understand what I was getting at there is, you know, let, let's, there will be a day, I'm sure, where every airplane is going to be unmanned. But for now... We need to have a balance of both and have, like you said, a deliberate plan before we just go all over into the unmanned side or whatever the technology may be. So one thing I've looked at a little bit in my look at the Vietnam War, I kind of looked at Operation T-Ball, which was this effort to get SIGINT, you know, the NSA, National Security Agency, was listening to chatter between uh, North Vietnamese pilots and their ground controllers, and they were trying to pass that information on to American fighter pilots. So I guess I kind of have a two-part question here for you is, in other examples and other eras that you looked at, did you see this desire to get this type of intelligence information to different parties quickly or or kind of as close to real time as possible? And what barriers were there to doing that? Because it seems like in Vietnam, there's this pretty big cultural barrier and security barrier between, you know, eight different yeah. agencies kind of sharing information with each other. And how much does that factor into yeah, what I think, you look at? I think, uh, you know, what happened in Vietnam is probably the apex of confusion and challenge for getting, you know, what I call tactical intelligence directly to the warfighter. But the theme of an airman in the air seeing things and needing to tell somebody about it, that started at the very, very beginning. The guy in the up in the balloon who could see the enemy troops but couldn't tell any about, anybody about it because he had no way of passing his information to the ground, that challenge has existed from that very first guy who got up in the balloon. It was remedied by dropping messages, you know, waiting messages out of the thing. It was remedied by smoke signals, you know, all kinds of crazy, crazy ways to talk to the ground. And that started, you know, with the balloon. When the airplane got up, Foulet was one of the the main advocates of it. He writes about it many times as we have got to develop a way to communicate to the ground. And, you know, the airplane, you know, when it first started flying was just, there was no radio from the, you know, from the air to the ground and and focusing on developing that capability lasts for a very long time. It's really not until World 
War II, you know, the days going into World War II where we have solid communications between the aircraft and the ground. That theme definitely was something that the airmen struggled with during those early days. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. And one thing I really like, too, that you get at a lot and in the book, but also what you've been saying here is just how deep this connection goes between these types of intelligence gathering roles and just aircraft technology. Like you kept saying, this is what air power kind of really is. And and I think that's so true and, and worth repeating. Like it's easy to think of air power as, you know, putting explosions on targets or doing air to air combat, you know, dogfighting and stuff. But the earliest aircraft, whether it be airplanes or balloons or kites, they're doing this observation, intelligence, some artillery spotting, reconnaissance, like those types of all forms of intelligence gathering missions. And it's easy to lose sight of that as being kind of the foundation for everything that's happening now and all these other missions that come about sort of after that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's, let's, let, you know, let's not forget that the first fighter aircraft were developed to go shoot down balloons. And then, you know, the, you know, that, that developed, I needed a fighter to go shoot your balloon down. Well, then, you know, the other guy needed a fighter to keep your fighter from shooting my balloon down. And then we got into dogfighting and all that stuff. But, you know, ultimately it was about protecting the, the reconnaissance aircraft at the very beginning, which, you know, I, I think we lose sight of, like you mentioned sometimes. Yeah. I think that's one of the ways that your work is really valuable pointing us towards that. Yeah. So Tyler, uh, I think that about does it for our time. So, uh, where can we find more of you online or in print on Twitter T-Y underscore Mordo, M-O-R-T-O. The book you can buy on Amazon or any of the other major publication places. Again, for everyone listening in, the book is From Kites to Cold War from the Naval Institute Press, author Tyler Morton. Uh, And Mike, uh, what are you up to these days? Where can we find you? Uh, Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hankenstein. That's uh, with a T-I-E-N. And you can find all of us at balloonstodrones.com. We do have our music that's created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which is on Facebook. Facebook under digitalfishmedia.org. And if you'd like to send us an email, please do that at balloonstodrones.com slash contact. And we are looking for more writers for articles, as always. So if you'd like to make a submission to uh, the Balloons to Drones team, please do that at balloonstodrones.com slash submissions. All right, and we'll see you all next time.